Well, good morning, church. Good to be together. Good to sing of his praises, to remember, which is really the theme this morning, a holy God. One is like no other, set apart from everything else. Not only is he holy, he's holy, holy. Not only is he holy, holy, he's holy, holy, holy. That's a God we worship. That's a God that has gave us these scriptures that we're going to be looking at this morning. I have a uh, parenting tip for you today. I have discovered a good approach for teaching our little children traffic safety. Let's not tell them to stay out of traffic. Let's teach them how to dodge cars. After all, isn't it a bit naive to think that children can stay off the road out of traffic? So we need to train our children to jump aside when they see a car coming, teach them to dance around oncoming 18-wheelers. I mean, really now, wouldn't it be better, safer, to devote our efforts to the training of skillfully dodging cars than encouraging them to stay out of the middle of the road in the first place. Well, what do you think? I hope you realize that's a terrible plan. And I'm sure we can agree it's absurd, good for nothing. Well, I speak this morning to the issue of playing in traffic. This roadway doesn't consist of 18-wheelers, beautiful sedans, or minivans, but it's a toll road. There is a cost. I'm talking about playing in the traffic of sexual expression. Many in our culture play in the traffic of unrestrained sexuality, hoping not to get run over by the Mack truck of addiction. Now we even have a freeway called the internet that often goes unpoliced, so men and women, young and old, are trying to dodge getting hit by the vehicle carrying guilt and shame. Not crash into depression or decreased effectiveness or emptiness or the, or the law of diminishing returns. Now all of you right now are going, whoa boy, this is going to be a tough one. Yep, it is. It's a subject that makes us squirm a little bit. But I would be doing you no favors to avoid it simply because it's somewhat or a lot awkward. And even more importantly, I would be neglecting my calling and responsibility as a preacher of God's word for the Bible talks about it. And it shows up in our passage this morning as we're making our way through the first letter to the Thessalonians. And so I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we've been looking at vital signs. And, and yes, I knew this was here before I said, let's go 1 Thessalonians. But here we are now with the subject. Now, you might recall as part of a review here from last week that Timothy, who was sent back to Thessalonica to check the spiritual pulse of the church, returned with a progress report that was quite favorable the church overall was doing well in matters of faith and love. Their vital signs were good. Now, up until now in this letter, it has been very personal and pastoral. Not many instructions or commands have been given to this point. That's about to change. 
And so as we now come to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, the letter shifts a bit to Paul providing instructions on Christian behavior. It's really to supply what is lacking in their faith that he talked about last week. Chapter 3, we saw in verse 10 that it spoke of that, that there was gaps in their understanding. There were some deficiencies uh, in, in in their walk with the Lord. And Paul can't go to them and tell them of that. He can write to them and tell them of that. And that's what we have as we come to chapter 4 and then 5. Paul addresses practical holiness. Day-to-day choices that have a direct bearing on our relationship with God and with others. And he begins with this matter of sexual immorality. Now my hope this morning is that there's, there, there, there's something here for everyone in this room. That you may say, well, that's not really an issue for me. Well, there's something here for you this morning as we better understand what holy living means. It's not just that. All right, we'll see that as we go along. I want to give you two statements this morning, and then I'm going to ask three questions. It forms my outline for this morning. Two statements, then three questions. And the first statement has to do with our motivation. The first statement is live to please God. Live to please God. All right, hopefully you're there. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, finally, which by the way, by saying finally, uh, he's not saying I'm going to now wrap things up in this letter. That's, that's not what finally means. The thought really is, as for what remains to be said, going back to supplying what is lacking your faith. And so he says, as for what remains to be said, finally, continue with the verse now, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And so the context for Paul's discussion on sexual purity is behaving in a way that pleases God. That's our motivation. It's our motivation for living within some parameters. It's not, oh, I just got to follow these rules in some pharisaical way. It's seeking to please God. That's on the table for all of us. To what degree does pleasing the Lord matter to you? Are you thinking about it during the week? There was a brilliant young concert pianist who was performing for the very first time in public. The audience sat enthralled as beautiful music flowed from his disciplined fingers. The people could hardly take their eyes off this young prodigy. As the final note faded, the audience burst into applause, and everyone was standing applauding except one old man up front. Uh, And and as as the pianist looked at him, he just walked off the stage very discouraged. The state manager didn't understand, and he he praised the performance. He said, look out there. Everyone is on his feet except for one old man. And the youth dejectedly said, yes, but that old man, he's my teacher. He wanted to please his teacher. That's all that mattered. Not all the applause from everyone else. That's what mattered. Pleasing him. Now, when I think of pleasing God, I just, I don't really spend a lot of time on this, but don't think of it in the sense of he's never satisfied with with what we do, no matter how hard we try. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not the God that we serve. We don't need to think of him as God the Father. 
And as God the Father, do I want to please my heavenly Father? Do I want to, to, to in, my, in my day-to-day stuff, do I want to please God in heaven? Is that the motivation for how I live my life? And if so, then how do we live in such a way that pleases Him? Well, my second statement this morning is live to do God's will. Live to do God's will. You want to know what God's will is for your life? I can tell you. I mean, it's a big subject. Oh, what's God's will for my life? I can tell you what God's will is right here. Better yet, let Paul tell you, beginning of verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. It is God's will to be sanctified. This isn't some add-on to their salvation, but it is the will of God for all believers. What is God's will that they should be sanctified? Well, what is this sanctification business? Big word, what does it mean? Well, sanctification, we break it down, literally means being set apart for God. It's a word we often see as holy, sanctified. Same word, set apart for God. And it describes the taking us from what we once were to becoming something very different. That's the process. You see, the Christian life is a life set apart, reserved to give glory to God. And what makes someone holy is that you belong to God. You belong to God. Now, Alistair Begg tells of a preacher who told the story of when he was called up to serve his country during World War II. And as he stood in formation with all the others uh, before the, the drill sergeant for the very first time, The drill sergeant looked them all over and he said, you know, I I know you've come from all different backgrounds and, and all different families, but I want you to know that as of today, you are mine, all mine. And the new recruit knew this was true. He knew that he was now under the the control of this imposing authority. When we're brought into the family of God, When we entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, listen, Jesus looks us into the eye and he says, irrespective of your background, irrespective of your family name or your preferences or wherever you have been or whatever you have done, you are mine, all mine. And I just want to go, sometimes we resist that. But because of that truth, believer, it sets in motion the process to conform us to the image of Jesus. And I can tell you with absolute certainty that is God's will for you. On the authority of God's word. It's sanctification, it's holiness that speaks to the process after our conversion. All who know Christ are to be making progress in practical holiness, living each day set apart for his use. We belong to him. We're to live to please God. We're to live to, to do God's will. What's his, what's his will? To be sanctified, holy, set apart for him, that we become more and more like Jesus Christ. Well, here's my first question around that. What, is, what does that look like? What does that look like? First of three questions. What does that look like? To be sanctified, to be holy, to be set apart. Well, Paul gives a concrete example. Now, he could have chosen uh, other examples but this one under the, uh, uh, the leading, the guidance, uh, breathing out of God is what made it in his letter. 
And it's an appropriate one for all time, uh, certainly for our day. Now, let me read verse 3 again. You need to follow along here. Verse 3, I'm going to pick it up right from the beginning. Verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now follow closely. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should live in moderation in your sexual expression. I hope you're on top of your game and you go, that's not what it says. Oh, it says that you should practice safety as you play in the traffic of sexual activity. It doesn't say that. It's God's will that you be sanctified. What? That you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, that word avoid literally means clean cut. Clean cut. It doesn't suggest at all that you can get as close to something as possible, yet able to resist engaging in it and go, oh, I guess I avoided that one. No, no, no. That's, that kind of avoidance has given us way too much leeway. It means abstention, not moderation. You go, well, Pastor, doesn't the Bible say all things in moderation? All things that are lawful in moderation, but not all things that are sinful. So when it comes to matters that are sinful and evil, the issue is not moderation, it's abstention. It's not to dabble in it, it's to cut it out of our lives. Now picture that, might be, that if you've had your, ever had your tonsils out, they don't leave some of your tonsils in place, right? I mean, they remove them completely. It was once there, it's no longer there, that's the picture. They cut it right out. That's what it means to avoid and in our culture that is so preoccupied with sex, come on, it's challenging, isn't it? Now, if you think that the freedom of sexual expression began with the Beatles in the 60s and the 70s, think again. Paul was writing from Corinth. It was a city known for its moral depravity. Now, growing up in, in Massachusetts, don't hold that against me, but I, was, I didn't live too far from the city of Lynn. And that city could not be mentioned without someone going, Lynn, Lynn, the city of sin. Every time. Well, if there was a sin city in the first century Roman Empire, it was Corinth. Corinth, Corinth, the city of sin. Doesn't have the same ring to it. But all Paul had to do as he's writing this letter is look out his window in Corinth, and there he would see the temple of uh, Aphrodite. It was a symbol of all kinds of, of, of excess. And the people he was writing to in Thessalonica might not have been as excessive as Corinth, but it was still a culture stained with immorality. There was homosexuality. There was erotic perversions. There were a number of deities they worshipped that involved rites of sexual morality, even ritual prostitution, if you can believe that. It's possible even that many of the new converts in Thessalonica had mistresses. And some of the women were likely even engaged in holotry. And so even though it did not come to them in a satellite dish or on the internet freeway, it was a culture similar to ours and that it was characterized by unrestrained sexuality. It's in this context that Paul writes to these believers, calling them toward the path of holiness. And Paul, without any waffling at all, uh, he, he provides these instructions. I mean, he speaks plainly. He speaks honestly. He speaks practically. He speaks with authority. He speaks uninhibited. Church of living hope, avoid sexual morality. We're fools to think we can play in traffic and not get hurt. 
Now, I came across this poem-like auto. It's called Autobiography in Five Chapters. Maybe you've heard of it. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am hopeless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I've fallen in it again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. Now it's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. <laughs> Chapter five, I walk down another street. <laughs> right? Now the solution to any habitual sin to the thing that, that kind of keeps tripping us up, is to cut it out of our lives. Some aren't even walking down another street, let alone walking around the hole. And all too many have the approach of getting as close to the line without getting over it when God says, go down another street. That other approach is foolishness. That to me would be like a soldier going into the battlefield hoping he doesn't get hit too much. So this is how we're to please God and to do his will. Avoid sexual morality. Second question. How are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to do that? Or you might think of it this way. How are we to work that out in our lives? All right, we come to verse 4 now. It's, we come to one of the more difficult phrases in all of Thessalonians to, to interpret. Verse 4. And the NIV says that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Now there's the word holy again. It's the second time it's appeared. Holy, sanctified, same word. Now it's the word body though, which is, um, causes some disagreement. It's literally vessel in the original. It's vessel. It's gotten a lot of attention. Because what's the metaphor intended here by the use of the word Vessel. Is it the body, as the NIV has it? Is it a wife, as some other translations have it? Or is it something else? And there's all kinds of disagreement on it. And so if you have the NIV, you have translating vessel as body. You have others translating as wife. So that it says either each of you should learn to live with his own wife or learn to acquire or possess his own wife. Now, I'm going to spare you all the pros and cons of each position, Okay. I took some time with it. You can research it yourself. I don't want us to get lost in this. It makes the most sense to me to go with the NIV in this case. I believe the NIV has it right, though not everyone agrees. That is fine. What I do think is a point of agreement that I've seen as I was researching this, regardless of how someone understands vessel, was the principle. The principle is this, there is only one outlet for our sexual expression, being married. Sex has a God-given context, namely heterosexual marriage. It is forbidden in every other context. 
Prior to being married, it's called fornication, which is a violation of God's intended purpose for sex. When you're married and you go outside of your marriage, it's called adultery. I don't like the word affair because that softens it. Okay, another subject. Adultery, involvement with someone other than your marriage partner. That's in violation of God's intended purpose. And so learning to control one's body within the framework of God's intended purpose means one thing and one thing only. It's in the context of marriage. Now I know this runs counter to the sex-crazed culture of Paul's day and in our day as well. And that's why we have verse 5. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. There's going to be a difference. And in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32, and we'll get to that in the beginning of the, the new year when we look at Romans. But one of the indicators from that passage in Romans, one of the indicators that a culture has turned its back on God that does not know God is the sexual chaos, confusion, and mess into which it falls. If a society or God's people go against God's standard, they do at their own peril. Now, there were these two men in a truck. Neither of them were very bright. As they were passing through a small town, they came to an overpass with a sign that read, Clearance, 11 feet, 3 inches. 11 feet, 3 inches. Well, they got out and they measured their rig. It was 12 feet, 4 inches tall foot or so taller than the clearance. They climbed back in the cab of the truck. The passenger asked the driver, what do you think we should do? The driver looked around, shifted in gear and said, not a cop in sight. Let's take a chance. <laughs> I told you they weren't very bright. Now we think of God and I, and I, and I did growing up, no fault of anyone else, but my, I just wasn't listening. But we think of God as this cosmic cop whose rules are designed to cramp our style and cheat us out of good times. You having fun? <laughs> I'm going to ruin that fun. That's not why we have it. That's not who God is. It's actually just the opposite. God knows what is best. His heart is always good. His words are designed to protect us from harm. From bailing through 11.3 and saying 11, 11 feet 3 inches and saying I can do this. The sexual expression of love is in the context of marriage. And you know, Hollywood has defined that completely differently. And so much of the movies and literature have hailed as beautiful love stories. And we get caught up in it sometimes. You go, oh, that's so beautiful. But it's directly contrary to what is written for us here in the scriptures. Now, the danger is very real, though perhaps subtle, to allow Hollywood to shape our thinking on sexuality more than God's word itself. And you may give yourself permission to watch and read such stuff. I'm not going to be up here and go, do this, don't do that, avoid these things. And that's not, it's not, you got to work that one out yourself. You may give yourself permission to do that, all right? But beware, and I say this to myself, beware to not take your cues from that material, from that entertainment, but from the word of God. And so we must ask even, we must ask, what effect does that entertainment have on my ability to control my own body in a way that is holy and honorable? A wealthy couple decided to hire a chauffeur 
And so they advertised and the applicants were screened and four suitable candidates were brought before the lady of the house for the final selection. She called the prospective chauffeurs to her balcony and she pointed out a brick wall alongside of the driveway. And then she asked each of the men, how close do you think you could come to the wall without scratching my car? The first candidate felt he could drive within a foot of the wall without damaging the car. The second candidate felt sure that he could come within six inches of the wall and not scratch the car. And the third man believed that he could get within three inches. Pretty impressive. The fourth candidate said, I do not know how close I could come to the wall without damaging your car. Instead, I would try to stay as far away from that wall as I could. Good idea. And obviously, he was the one that was hired. He had a different focus. He understood the importance of keeping a wide margin of safety. Let me ask you, when it comes to particular sin that keeps tripping you up in your life, how close do you try to get to the wall of protection without damaging your life? More specific, in the area of sexual sin, are you seeking to steer yourself to a narrow miss or leaving yourself a wide margin of safety. Well, pastor, that's legalistic. Not legalism, it's smart. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. How are we supposed to work this out? Self-control. Not very popular today. Self-gratification is. But we ought to learn to gain mastery over our bodies and It's many appetites. Each one of you should learn to control his own body. And it's all connected to the gospel. How so? Well, our redemption is not only of our souls, but the totality of who we are. Now, we might like want want to kind of compartmentalize here. Scripture does no such thing. We like to make this distinction. My soul was saved. God doesn't really care about the body. Not true. Not true. He cares about the body enough that he says, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. We're not our own. Recently, my car was in the shop, and so my friend was gracious enough to let me borrow his car. Now, when I am in my own car, I try to drive carefully. But when I was driving someone else's car, I drove very carefully. (laughs) Right? I don't want to damage his car and give it back to him. My friend and say, yeah, sorry, I banged it up a little. It's in the same way, our bodies are the personal property of someone else, our God, of God, of the Holy Spirit. And the only way we could say, who does he think he is telling me what to do with my body is by not belonging to him at all. Did he shed his blood to cover our sins? Has he given his spirit to make us new? Then if so, then we should glorify him and even in our physicality, especially our sexuality. Now, you may be here today and you say, Pastor, I've already blown it. Where do I go with things now? And perhaps this message is difficult to hear because maybe you're living with the consequences of that or you're kind of feeling condemned today. You might be saying, I saw the bait, not the hook. I'm getting reeled in. You might figure it's too late. Come back to the gospel. 
Come back to the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that extends do-overs, mulligans, whatever you want to call it. New start given to every single person in this room. Rehearse in your mind the mighty grace of Christ in your life. Experience his healing. Past mistakes don't have to mean future failure. You can break the pattern. You can get on a different road that leads you to wisdom, to obedience to God's design from this point forward and enjoy uh, and have enjoyment of God's gift to you. Let these words do the work of conviction in your life and it has to do the work of conviction in my life. You see, shame is not the point of the message or or the scriptures this morning. Conviction is. Shame goes inward, it's crippling. Conviction brings you to the cross, and it's freeing. There are no secrets in this room that God does not know. There are no dark places that Christ hasn't died for. Jesus' precious hands were pierced for those sins. He died to remove the chains so we can live in freedom. And so may God this morning, maybe he needs to do this in your life, he needs to bring some secret sins into the open before God in order that they may be forgiven and forsaken. And you need to go to 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9. Confess it. We agree with God it's sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's either true or it's not. And it is true. All right, what does being sanctified look like? Be set apart to God by avoiding sexual immorality. How are we supposed to do that? He says, learn to control your own body. Learn to live within God-ordained limits. Practice self-control in all areas of our lives. We come to the third question, and I really can't spend much time on this. Uh, It could be a sermon in and of itself. We're just going to touch on it. Third question, is this really a big deal? Is this really a big deal? Make something big out of this that doesn't need to be. Is this just a private matter or someone's personal opinion? Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. And in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or sister or take advantage of him. There's a lot here. I'm going to just kind of boil it down to the basics. Sexual sin is not a private matter that is only a sin against God but you are robbing your sister or your brother of what is rightfully theirs. That's what it's saying. There is no way we can engage in sexual sin, whether it's in our minds, with our eyes, with physical touch, without cheating somebody else of what is rightfully theirs. That will stick. That's what the verse is talking about. Can't spend more time on it than that. I think you get the point. And God just going to overlook this. Look at the end of verse 6. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. And we look at the culture and we go, oh, it's such a mess in this area. And, and, and maybe part of the punishment of God, maybe, upon a culture is that he gives people over to their sexual deviations and abnormalities and perversions. But, but I don't want to go with what's a mess with, the, with our culture in that area because Paul's talking to the church. This was a critical issue for the church in Thessalonica. They had come out of a background where worship involved prostitution. Where in their culture, men had a wife at home, but it was entirely permissible and acceptable for them to find their sexual expression with as many women as they wanted. No, no, they had to be set apart from that. That that, 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 it's not to be the way of those who are saved for those who, who know the Lord. 
And that's why he says, verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Third time, holy, sanctified. Here it is again. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, says God has saved us and called us to a holy life. To be holy means you belong to God. And folks, this, this applies to every single area of your life. Don't check out. And have you noticed holiness doesn't happen by accident? It's a choice. It's being intentional. It's a grace-given effort. Have you noticed no one drifts toward holiness? <laughs> we drift away from it. We drift toward compromise. And so perhaps today, the, the, the issue for you of practical holiness isn't this area of sexual purity. But we've seen that God has set you apart for his purposes. He's growing you to be more like Jesus. God has set you apart for his exclusive use, all areas of our life. So whatever is getting in the way of that would apply here. Whatever is impeding your growth as a Christian. And whatever in your conduct is not aligned with your calling as a Christian to holiness has to be taken seriously. We can't make light of this. Verse 8, again, I can't really spend time on this. Therefore, he who rejects his instruction, this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives us the Holy Spirit. And so your area of weakness may not be around sexual impurity, but any rejection of instruction in God's word, you notice it, is a rejection of God himself. And remember, child of God, child of God, you've been given the Holy Spirit to enable you to progress in practical holiness. God does not leave us on our own. He gives us the Holy Spirit, it says at the end of verse 8. Present tense. He gives you his spirit to help you each day to live a life pleasing to him, to live up to this standard here. Because we go, how in the world can I live to the standard of holiness? Elizabeth Elliot helps us here. She says, you only have to stay pure for 60 seconds a minute. <laughs> yeah. And then I can do it the next 60 seconds. So whether it's sexual purity or some other area where you lack self-control. Church, don't play in traffic. It could have tragic results, like it did for Shane Magster in 2005. He died in an avalanche. The 27-year-old and four of his friends drove to the Canyon Ski Resor Resort outside uh, Park City, Utah, Rode the ski lift, hiked up to the back country uh, gate outside the Dutch draw area. He went through the gate, posted with warning signs, and started snowboarding. On the second trip down the same slope, someone in the party shouted, Avalanche! But Shane could not escape, and two days later, they dug his body out of the snow. Some of the media severely criticized the, in quotes, reckless, out-of-bounds riders, picturing Shane as a novice, unaware of the possible dangers. But that isn't the true story. Shane Makesner and two others in his party were avalanche-certified backcountry guides. The men owned special avalanche gear, but didn't bring it with them when they went to Dutch Draw. And someone said this is not an unusual occurrence. In fact, skiers were the most 
avalanche training are more likely to be seduced into faulty reasoning by factors like track slopes and group enthusiasm. Someone put it this way. Mexner didn't die because he was a fool. I mean, maybe. But this is the point right here. Like his friends, he said, he was lulled into letting his guard down. Don't let your guard down. Gordon MacDonald said, an unguarded strength and an unprepared heart are double weaknesses. We may think, oh, God never get me in this area. And whatever that is. He may blow other people out of the water. He's never blow me out of the water. In this particular area, whatever that is for you, be careful. Might be the ones who know the most that are the greatest risk. All the talents in the world, all the God-given abilities we have won't help us if we think we are above falling. I ask you, what area in your life are you confident that you will never fall? Guard it. Guard it. Let's pray. God, I know this is tough stuff. You wanted it here for us to read, to know about in terms of what you want of our lives. And, and uh, we don't want to come at this as something negative because you've given us a beautiful, beautiful gift. And we can honor and accept and embrace the gift of sexual purity we really get to where your heart's at. So God, speak into our lives in a very personal way this morning. And not just that area, but whatever area that we need to hear from you around pursuing holiness. So that we are truly set apart for your purposes and to do your will. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.